welcome to uh, the latest episode of View from the Loch. Uh, I have with me, and I'm really delighted, you are going to love this. We have one of the few players to win three US Opens. The oldest ever US Open champion in 1990 at the grand old age of 45, which is really a youngster in today's currency. Widely regarded as one of the greatest players in PGA Tour history, and has also developed uh, a very highbrow career as a golf course architect. Welcome, Hale Irwin. Well, it's uh, delightful to be with you, Bill. And uh, you know, I think for the listeners out there, uh, golf is you know, it's a fabulous activity. It's It's been in my life. Uh, I owe to golf so many things. Uh, more importantly, the relationships I've been able to establish and friends that I've made are... Uh, beyond any prize money you could ever imagine. Well, Hale, I mean, you, you were a star athlete, um, you know, going back into the 60s, American football, baseball, and golf. Uh, so you definitely seem to have the, uh, the, the the sporting gene about you. So how come you chose golf? Well, it's uh, sort of an interesting development, Bill. As, as a young uh, lad, I was... Uh, I was into everything. I grew up in a very small town. Uh, we had, uh, as our golf course, it was a nine hole sand green municipal golf course. There, there was more dirt than grass. It was not anything to speak of at all. Uh, baseball was the big sport around that area. Uh, we play the, the pickup American football, play uh, a little basketball ride the bikes, you know, you do it. In a small town, you do what you can do. And uh, at the age of 14, my parents moved to Colorado, which was a really good time for my development, both physically and mentally. I was, I think, ready for another change in environment and got into some organized activities. And as I went on through school, uh, I kept up all those through high school. And into college, I was fortunate enough to get a, an American football scholarship. And I, I refer to that as I wasn't going anywhere with that professionally. Uh, I was too small. Uh, plus, I had a college education. Perhaps I was too smart. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, and it, it just things sort of fell by the wayside. The baseball became something that uh, probably was my best sport. But it became the one that was uh, more tedious and uh, that went aside because I, I was just running out of time. I was working in the summer as for my father and my uncle as a laborer on construction sites and playing as golf when I could. Um, you know, all those athletic activities, I think, came together and, and culminated in my golf starting to develop. Uh, I was winning some state tournaments in Colorado. I really didn't play much on the national scene uh, until I won the collegiate championship in 1967 which that was sort of out of the clear blue, but it, it gave me the confidence that I could compete with my peer group. And maybe I couldn't compete with Jack Nicklaus and Arnold Palmer and Gary Player and the great players yeah. of the time. But I, I felt like at least it was a, a somewhat of a grand start for someone that was coming from a very small town uh, and virtually no organized activity. So uh, long story short, if I may, is that uh, I was very fortunate along the way. I, I made good friends. I, I was able to use my athletic abilities in a positive way to help develop my golf swing. And I've, I've never had a lesson. So it was just sort of of my own making. 
and good or bad, that's that's what it was. And uh, and, and the rest is history, as they say. Well, gosh, that's amazing that you never had a lesson. Gosh, Hale. Um, was there a professional golfer or a golfer that you revered, that you looked up to during those particular times that, that was an inspiration for you? Well, I think prior to turning pro, Bill, it was, uh, I think what little television that I watched and little that was broadcast at the time, uh, the impressionable age, of course, for me was, as well, as a young lad, we didn't even have a television uh, and tournament golf. I didn't know what that was. Um, but as uh, Arnold Palmer won the U.S. Open at Cherry Hills, which was in Denver, not far from where I lived, that sort of gave me a little bit of a, a boost. Now, Arnie was not my mentor. He wasn't my hero. He was really a guy that we all followed. And to this day, I still think of Arnie all the time when I look at some of my memorabilia around the room. Uh, but I think Dale yeah. Douglas, gentleman, that he also was from Colorado. He was nearly 10 years my senior. <clears throat> but Dale uh, was a reasonably good player. He's a Ryder Cup player. He won three times on the uh, regular tour. He he won uh, the U.S. Senior Open. So he Dale was a good player. But he and his wife, Joyce, they didn't have children, and they just kind of took my wife and I under their wing and kind of showed us, this is back in the day where you didn't have advanced reservations and all the hospitality and things given to you by tournaments. Uh, the players really helped themselves. And Dale was sure. very kind, Joyce. They they really helped Sally and I along. And uh, again, he, he, he wasn't a teacher. He was just a friend and someone that I, I looked to for advice. And So it's, it's nice to hear that. Uh, about Dale. So I, I guess, Hale, you know, if we fast forward, your first US Open triumph came at Winged Foot. So uh, a fantastic uh, uh, name for a course uh, in 74. So you're still in your 20s and it was called a massacre at Winged Foot. So <laughs> why, why was that? If you can explain to the listeners um, well, I, and members of Loch Lomond Golf Club, uh, why that was. <laughs> I think uh, you have to understand that uh, uh, between the, the U.S. Open and probably the Open Championship, you're tested like no other. Um, there is uh, certainly the prestige uh, that goes with those particular tournaments, but the course setup, are, at least in the U.S. Open, uh, are not necessarily reliant upon the weather as they can some of the links courses at the Open Championship, but they are set up to be testing, and Wingfoot was beyond the test. Uh, when I tell you that the fairways were, let, let's say, uh, 25 yards, 28 yards uh, wide, with a, a probably a one-inch first primary rough cut, and then the second rough was literally over your shoes. It was very, very deep. Uh, the greens were very firm for those days, uh, very fast. In fact, some guy named Jack Nicholas put it right off the first green, and that word spread very quickly around the golf course. But I think through the first uh, practice round or two, the gloom and doom in the locker room was, uh, you could cut it with a knife. It was 70% of the field had checked out. I mean, they just, they'd given up already and hadn't even started the tournament. Uh, so I, I'm sitting there thinking, well, I, I'd played 
well the week before in Philadelphia, and I was I was not really on my game, and I'd I'd won two tournaments prior to this tournament, and I felt like I I felt like I knew how to win, and all I had to do was to beat thirty percent of the field, and here we go, let's see what happens. And I just said, hey, when you make a par on this golf course, that's like a birdie. You, you have to be you're going to make bogeys. Don't don't even fool yourself. You're going to make bogeys. The real trick was not to make a double bogey or more because there weren't birdie opportunities to, to recover those shots. So you had to be very, very careful how you, quote, attacked the golf course. You, you really were on your heels from the get-go. And um, it was just very hard. Weather was not a, a problem. Uh, it was just the whole locations, the rough, just the whole thing was extremely difficult for the best players in the world. And, and what, what was the final score again, Hale? What did you win it with? Uh, it was, the score was 287. At the time, that was seven over par. They had taken uh, two par fives and made them into par fours, very lengthy par fours. So they right. dropped the par down to 70. But nevertheless, it didn't matter what it was. It was hard. The, the two holes that they had changed were number nine. I mean, excuse me. Um, but were they? I think it was number yeah, number nine and number uh, sixteen, and yeah, both of those holes were at least a long iron, if not a fairway wood. In those days, it was woods and and true irons. <laughs> it didn't have yeah. the metal. So uh, it, they it played very very long for a par seventy. But of course, you won at Hale, so uh, a bit like uh, Paul Laurie at the Open at Carnoustie. You know, at the end of the day, it's your name on the trophy. You beat everybody else. Um, and uh, I guess that, uh, you know, you, that, that is one of your three triumphs. Now, there is a story that you allegedly dreamt that you were going to win. And you just told your wife three weeks or two weeks before that you had this dream. Is that actually true? It is. Uh, two weeks prior... Now, did it unfold exactly the way the dream was? Well, no, but the, the <laughs> bottom line was that in this dream, I had won. And uh, I, I didn't tell anyone because I didn't want it to come back and, and haunt me. I didn't want it to sound like it was braggadocious. I, I didn't want it to sound uh, assuming whatsoever. But it there was something in the in the in the spirit of the name and game i guess i don't know what it was but uh, i only confided in her and uh, and left it at that well yeah which is incredible in itself really uh and and you you had this golden real golden period here uh you know you made the cut from 1975 to 1978 in 86 consecutive pga tour events uh, which is right up there, right up there with the best. And you're top five in the world uh, in Mark McCormack, which it was then golf rankings, from 75 to 79. I mean, I, I mean it's an incredible feat. And, uh, of course, you know, us uh, UK uh, and Irish golf fans are well aware of Hale Irwin. Uh, and, you know, we, you are one of the golfers in the world. Did you feel like you got the recognition you deserved, Hale? Well, Bill, to be honest with you, that was never uh, a consideration of mine. 
I, I felt like uh, if I played as well as I felt like I could play, then that's all I could do. Whether the recognition came or not was secondary. Now, does recognition help you in some other endeavors? Of course, but it doesn't help you make that putt. It doesn't help you hit that ball into the fairway or, or hit that great bunker shot. It doesn't do any of that. So that was more my my thought process was take care of the business right here in front of you. And what happens elsewhere, you can't control. And I, I felt like the game of golf, you have to forget whatever, good or bad, you can try and seize some of the momentum with the good and try to forget the bad because there's plenty of bad. If you want to look for bad, just open your eyes and look around the world. There's lots of stuff going on. But like I said earlier, the things I've taken away from golf are the relationships and the friendships. And that's the way I went forward with my game was to try and take the last shot, if it was good, to carry that momentum, to keep the positive going and always end a practice session with a positive. If, even if I had to make a six-inch putt at the last, I wanted to hear the ball go in the hole. So that's what my game is predicated on. It wasn't, was I going to make a name for myself? Was I going to get recognized? If you do your your best, uh, recognition comes from within, and that's the best recognition you can have. Well, here, I mean, you are known for your mental strength. And during these podcasts, we have had professional sports people on who have talked about mental strength uh, and, and how important it is. What One a very famous uh, cricketer over here said that he felt that he was born with uh, a strong mental attitude to life. And, and how could you describe your mental toughness? Was that something you worked on, Hale, or is that something you naturally acquired? Well, I think it's a little of both, Bill. I don't think I really consciously worked on it. I think the my parents uh, grew up in an era where uh, they went through the you know the Great Depression and and uh, World yeah. War II, and and they were of the hardy breed that uh, we all uh, respected so and. They, they taught me pretty much the fundamentals of life and how to get along. And then it was up to me to try and apply that as best I could. But I think my athletic background gave me the wherewithal to see that if, if I didn't give my opponent the respect he deserved, I was going to lose because I was probably expecting myself to be better than he and then that's not necessarily the case. You have to treat your opponent. And I don't care who your opponent is. It could be in a business. It could be anything else you might want it to be. But if you're competing against something else or someone else, you better give that entity the respect they deserve. Because then if you find that you think you're better than they, you will underperform. And yeah. that's what I didn't want to do. And I, in, in my athletic career, uh, I always tried to give the opponent his uh, his due and felt like I had to play better than he or they uh, to come out on top. So that was just sort of the driving force in my game. Well, and, and so how did you approach the Ryder Cup, which was a very, very strong U.S. team against GB uh, and uh, Ireland? So therefore, you know, not Europe. Uh, and, and it was a time where... America dominated the world of golf. Um, how, how did you, did you find, could you get motivated okay? Okay, you could respect your opponents, 
but could you get motivated uh, for that, Hale? Or like our course architect, the late, great Tom Weisskopf, he admitted that he found it difficult at times to, you know, to, to get into the Ryder Cup. For you, how did you view playing against GB in Ireland? Uh, you know, I, I never had any problems with that. Uh, honestly, uh, you know, Tom was a, a, a great uh, competitor, uh, a very skilled player. I don't think Tom reached the heights that he could have, and it, it may well be simply from what we're talking about right now. Uh, I don't know if he yeah. had that internal motivation, but he certainly had all the other credentials. However, uh, from my perspective, I never had any problems getting motivated. I was very proud to be on our team. And I was proud of the other team. I, mm. When you take, let's just say back in the day, when you're referring to, we had 12 pretty strong players. And GB Ireland, it had probably eight or nine good, really solid players. The difference mm. a little bit in, in the tail end. Our players yeah. might have been just a little bit better, and therefore those points that would swing would come our way. And, but, boy, when you start talking about competing against Tony Jacklin, right. Bernard uh-huh. Gallagher, uh-huh, right. Those guys were hard. They were tough. They got equally motivated. Uh, so I guess the patriotic fervor came out quite a bit, and I had no problems whatsoever. I enjoyed it immensely, and I was very proud of everyone that played on both of those teams because it, it was a very determined group that we played against. Uh, and when Europe was then included, it that leveled the playing fields considerably. Uh, those last yes. two or four spots, you know, now they, they went to Seve, they went to Panero, they went to the players that uh, Canizares uh, mm-hmm. that brought uh, a, a leveling of the field. And it became now our players, the American players, had to dispel that superior attitude, if you wish. I started looking at that other team, and, and they, they took it to the U.S. team in the 80s, big time. Yeah, yeah. Langer, I mean, it was an amazing, uh, you know, they call them the, the famous five. Uh, there's a podcast with Ken Schofield. Yeah, I think you know Ken, and, you know, we yes. have the famous five in Europe. Uh, and, and, you know, they were dominating um, the Masters. Uh, and, and Americans were coming over and, and winning the Open. It was quite a funny... The 80s was quite an odd type of, of situation. You had this transfer slightly of the golf par uh, to a more equilibrium. Uh, and uh, so it just appears that Europeans are going over and winning uh, the Masters, as I say, and the Americans are coming over and winning the Open. And there's a bit of real good jostling going on there and, uh, and very healthy for the game here. Oh, I, I think that those years were extremely healthy for the game, particularly, I think, in the, the European theater. It gave those players over there an opportunity to see their newfound heroes and to have people that they could look to and, and emulate and, and uh, praise and, and, and grow up. The young people growing up could say, yeah, I can do this. I may not have the opportunity that uh, I, I want to have, but I, I do have a chance. Yeah. And it, it really raised the bar. And it was great to see now on this side of the, the world, I, I think uh, we've kind of always had the same thing. And in fact, many cases, I've said this many times, I think our players were and have become very spoiled uh, because of the many numerous things they have that they don't have to really work for. Uh, and I, I, would, I would love to have been able to go into 
the opposing team's locker room. Go into yeah. a team chat and measure the attitudes, measure the, the, the feelings, the barometer of the room, and compare it to the U.S. I, I always wanted to do that. If I could just sneak in and, and <laughs> taste it, I, I would have. It's the one thing in my career I wish I could have done, and that was be a fly on the wall and, and do that. Well, it's quite interesting because um, uh, Tony Jackton was the chap who took Europe by the scruff of the neck and, and went to uh, the European authority, golf authorities uh, and said, we want, as a European team, the same as the American team. So we want the golf bags with our names on it. We want, you know, the hospitality, the, the accommodation, how we travel there. And he brought a real professionalism that he'd seen in the American team uh, to Europe. And, and that he was credited for raising the game um, for, for Europe actually off the golf course. Uh, and, and I think that that was an interesting move uh, by Tony. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, Tony, uh, I see a lot of Tony now, and, and I so respect Tony for being sort of the frontiersman, if you wish, and bringing the UK golf to the fore and bringing uh, those things that are important to those types of events up front and make them important so the players do feel special. They come to the first tee feeling yeah. like they deserve to be there. And uh, it was it was very palpable. You could see it. You could feel it. And Tony was the instigating force behind that. And to him, I give great credit and great praise for what he was able to do. Well, you mentioned Seve, Hale. And, of course, in 79, you won the U.S. Open in the Inverness Club that hosted that superb Solheim Cup uh, a couple of years ago. And, of course, Solheim and Ryder Cup are both coming up. Uh, very soon. Um, and so you won the US Open and then you went to Royal Lytham St. Anne's and you had a two-shot lead and you were going to be one of that elite group who would have won the US Open followed by uh, the Open and Seve kind of came up and uh, just took it from you. Um, so you would have seen firsthand this Severi Alaballesteris uh, type icon uh, and, and how did you feel? What do you remember about winning in Inverness and then the Royal Lytham St. Anne's Hale? Well, I, I think Inverness uh, came at kind of the the end of that uh, five-year run that you just spoke of earlier in the, the broadcast. Uh, I was playing quite well. I had my family out with me there. You know, I, I felt like by winning the our U.S. Open one more time, it confirmed that I could still play on the international stage and, and be a winner. Uh, you had this young guy coming in from Spain, uh, uh, amongst others, mind you, but Seve was yeah. uh, kind of the guy when you, when you went to Europe and you played in the Open Championship, it was, it was uh, Seve's name always popping up. Of course, you always had Jack. You always had the, the, the one, Tom Watson. Uh, but Seve was the one, I think, the, the guy over there that everyone looked to to be the, the leader of the pack. Well, anyway, uh, I did. I was playing, managing my game very well during the week, but I was not hitting the ball well at all. Um, I was just just scraping. It seemed like each day the, I was hanging on just a little bit less, a little bit less. I, 
I didn't have the the good positive momentum going to that last round as far as physically striking the ball. Uh, and then the you, you have to admit there was a little bit of uh, perhaps media pressure just from what you just said. You win the U.S. Open, you come over, now you have the Open Championship. It's just a small – it's done in the same year, blah, 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 keep going on. And I tried to eliminate that all from my mind. I really tried to take – to task my play, I was just not hitting the ball well. And going into that last round with the, I think with the way I was playing and the added pressure, and of course now you're the last group were with a very pro savvy uh, crowd, I just didn't play well. You know, with no excuses, it was not my tournament to win. But I will say, Savvy uh, showed some magic that day. He hit three fairways only, none with a driver. Three fairways, and and he won. Now, explain to me how that happens. I don't think you can do it out of the hands, <laughs> but he did. He, uh, you know, he hits. That's the hole where on the, the was the sixteenth that he hits it out of the car park, and uh, they have the yeah. cars to move. And I asked the referee, I said, "Isn't that out of bounds?" He said, "No." I'm thinking, how? and they're moving all the cars. And I thought, "Wow." And then he makes birdie from out in the car park. It was unbelievable. <laughs> he just was, he was magical that day. Yeah. 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 I mean, I clearly remember it as well. Uh, but the, the, the uh, UK British crowds took to you, Hale. I mean, you were very, very popular over here. And part of that was, I think, the Piccadilly match play at Wentworth, which was a, a joyous occasion there was a lot of hype about it it was different it was match play uh wentworth very special place as well uh, and then you went and won in 74 and 75 and you're only beaten in sudden death by david graham from australia in 76 so mm -hmm. you, you you so the the, the uk crowds hail you know they they absolutely admired you and realized you were a serious competitor, but you were very popular, I think, with maybe sometimes the tartan trousers, you know, and you, okay, the glasses as well, but that's fine. But, and did you feel, did you feel the warmth from the British golfing public? Oh, absolutely. I think when you go into that part of the world, you're approaching the cradle of golf. Uh, I was, I always enjoyed it. In fact, my wife and I just got back, much like you, a holiday in Scotland. You know, so going back there yeah. uh, always was fun. And, and playing in the Open Championship, playing in the Piccadilly, whatever it was, I truly enjoyed it. Uh, but speaking of Sebi, I, I did play Sebi when he was, I think, just 19 or 20 years old in the, in the uh, Piccadilly. And those were 36 old matches, uh, you know, theoretically. And... Uh, <laughs> We had a little rules interpretation. This was uh, the year that Europe was playing the tap down a spike mark, which was defined by a tough a uplift of tuft of grass. And we had an occasion where uh, there at the 16th hole, or it would have been the 34th hole, um, Sevy had a what he thought was a spike mark, and I, I didn't, and called in the referee, and he said no. Well, that upset Sevy tremendously, and uh, he missed the putt, so. But he had the honor on 17 there at, uh, at Wentworth and promptly hit it out of bounds. So I, I ended up winning the match three and one. But it, it, this was a time when Sebi was the emerging 
Matador from Spain. He was taking on the golf world and he, he didn't get his way. And I think that he had a, a, a bit of a chip on his shoulder, but he could sure chip with that chip. I'll tell you that yeah. he could he, up and down from anywhere, <laughs> but I think that help establish Seve's uh, popularity in Europe. And I, I, the thing I miss the most probably of, of Seve was he didn't come to the U S so our audiences could see uh, the magnificence this, this man had and the charisma. He had the Arnie charisma. Here's a question for you. Well, I'm going to turn the tables here a bit. We can talk about all the sure. players that ever played. The There's very few players. If you said the name Arnie, you know who exactly that is. Yes, you said the correct. Sevi, Sevi, you know exactly who that is. Now, you name another yes. name in the history of the game that brings recognition so promptly. Well, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, good question. Uh, I'm going to be slightly biased, uh, and I'm <laughs> going to say in, in the future, in the future, I think when you say Rory, I think he I, will I also. I agree, and he deserves it. I, I agree with you. But in the past, uh, when, I, when I've looked back, and I've did a, done a lot of reflecting here of late, I guess it's because of my age, uh, the two names that I keep throwing out there, and, and, and it's because I'm in the game. I know it, but I know Jack, and I know Tom. I know all the other players. But those two names reverberate, and yeah. they really stamped golf internationally uh, for those of us that played. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I'm sitting here and racking my brains and I think, yeah, you're <laughs> absolutely right. Um, Hale, you know, uh, thank you again so much for making yourself available for this. Uh, just a couple of more questions and, and maybe, you know, it'd be interesting to get your response to it. We talked about the 80s. Uh, it, was, it was a golden period for golf. It was a huge change happening in the world of golf. Uh, as well. Um, and now we come to sort of more modern times and we have the, the Live Tour, which has burst onto the scene uh, a, a couple of years ago, uh, controversially. Um, do you think that it has been good for shaking up the game? Do you think we might get to a world tour and we're going to get to where we need to get to? Or do you think it's been a huge distraction, which you're sad about? Uh, I would probably find myself in the camp of the latter, Bill. Uh, I, I'm not sure it was approached in the proper way. It, it was uh, an unwanted tsunami. I, I don't think we really found out as much about the background and the ingredients, the, what was this supposed to be? How is it going to integrate itself into becoming something that was, uh, not detrimental to golf. And, and I think that the players that have gone over there uh, for whatever reasons they had uh, have really sealed their, their fate uh, as far as being warmly brought back into the fold. Uh, I know when I, I owe everything that I have learned from the game and played in this wonderful game for so long <clears throat> that I owe it to those people that went before me and I'm trying to pay it forward by supporting the PGA tour, the European tour. And if we were going to have a world tour and you can call it whatever you want, I think it needed to be framed differently. Um, yes. I think, the, I think the players, sponsors, 
Our fans needed to know a little bit more about it. It just burst onto the scene way too quickly. A lot of money was thrown at these players. And how do you say no? Well, there are a couple very distinguished players that did say no, and I respect them immensely for doing that. Uh, I don't disrespect the others because they have their own uh, reasons for doing it. But I, I've I felt like I know Rory has my back. I know Tiger has my back. I know those players that didn't go over there have my back. But I sometimes wonder about the others. Do, did they go for the wrong reasons? And uh, this could be the old guy in me talking, but uh, I feel like I, I owe my tour, United States PGA Tour, my full support. And I, I couldn't have done it if they came to me with a billion dollars. It just, I couldn't have done it. And uh, uh, it's you're very emotional about it, Hale, and, and you know with good reason as well. Um, the foundations of golf, I guess, were were rocked, uh, and um, you know it's been difficult for a lot of people uh, to get their heads round from journalists through to the players themselves, uh, and uh, it, it's a sort of navigating a very difficult situation because if it all comes together. If that does happen, there's still going to be, um, you know, people are going to have to make up. Uh, and, and sometimes that's quite difficult. Uh, and, and, you know, there's, your players say they're, they're out, they, they don't know what's going on, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I guess we just have to wait and see here. Well, it's, I, I think you make great points, Bill. And I'm, I'm not sure that there is a, uh, a smooth transition back. I don't think we're going to, what we had 20 years ago, I don't think we're going to see in the future. There's so much uh, money and so many players out there now that are maybe expecting something, feel they're entitled to something. This entitlement thing is, uh, seems to be paramount. And the entitlement, I believe, is what's driving so much of this right now. Um, there may be those of us that are not, feeling quite that uh, generous uh, and, and maybe our forgiveness or maybe our expectations of what the players should have are different. It is a different game now. It's played differently. You know, the, the players think of it differently. Uh, sponsors come in with a little bit different attitude, but everybody it feels they're expected or they're entitled to something at the end. And Maybe that, that work ethic that we once had has changed uh, immeasurably. We, we just don't know what's coming down. And, and the origins of this whole thing, I think, were established a little bit under some secretive arrangements and meetings. And maybe it had to be that way. And maybe it just couldn't be out there. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what happened, and I don't know if we ever will know. But going forward i think we have to be more open-minded about what is in the best interest of the game of golf around the world because it is now it's a world game let's not kid yeah. ourselves. it's not just a local it's worldwide and we have to look at it that way and say okay we have thousands upon thousands of very very good players and i'm not talking about just the professionals i'm talking about amateurs across the globe look at asia what's happening in asia Look at what's coming out of Europe. I mean, all these kids are very, very good. Hitting a golf ball anymore is not the problem. I mean, that's not the talent. I mean, they have they have talent. The issue now is, can you 
And do we need to make available to all of those players this entitlement thing that they they think they have? Or do we still have the pyramid with it? If you want to be number one, you have to climb to the top with a lot of hard work and it's not giving to you. So, yeah, again, I, I don't feel like I want to preach. I don't feel like I'm uh, at the bully pole. I, I just don't feel that I'm necessarily unqualified for an opinion, but I'm not sure I have all the facts in front of me to make an accurate opinion of what we'll have going forward. Well, it's a good point you make, actually, Hale. I'm sitting here thinking about it, and obviously we've got the majors, so that is, they are, you know, unlikely to change. Um, but if you think about boxing, uh, you're right, you have a boxer, two people boxing, they're boxing for IBF, W championship, or another one, there's three, you know, uh, championships that they could win, or maybe win all three, uh, and, you know, I, I love boxing, but I, I'm completely confused about who's fighting for what these days. And uh, I guess, in a way, you're saying, well, yeah, there is a ranking system, but really, who is number one golfer? Who does get the recognition? Uh, and it starts to get cloudy uh, when you say something like, yeah, but Cam Smith, you know, he's right up there. And, and how good is he now? We can judge a bit, but not really. Uh, and he's a phenomenal talent. And, a, you know, a, a, he's, he's obviously, you know, won majors. Uh, but, you know, you're, it's difficult to assess. It's difficult to assess who is number one. So I, I think that's a fair point, Hale, that you make. Well, I, I, I do believe that, again, in, in today's world with uh, how we use our pronouns, are we going to have gender people coming in now? I mean, where does this stop? Where do we make the differentiation? Uh, and I do think that the public seems to clamor for who's the best. Who's number one? What's the best movie? What's the best company? What's the best phone to use? What, what's the best? Uh, and I, I think perhaps we've always, mankind has always wanted the best, wanted to be the best. Uh, and if we're going to have that, then we have to have some rules of engagement. And those rules of engagement, as you indicate and, and hint, are changing. And we don't know where it's going. And for the betterment of things, we're messing it up. So I think we have to take a deep breath, step back, and kind of reevaluate how we're going about our business. I think we'll all echo that, Hale. One final question. Uh, the Ryder Cup in Rome uh, in a few weeks' time. It's always hotly anticipated. There is a feeling that Europe have uh, more of a chance than what was felt would be the case from two years ago. Uh, how do you assess the Ryder Cup, US versus Europe? How do you assess well, it, Hale? I, my wife and I came within a whisker of getting tickets to go over. I think it's going to be a hotly contested event and i would love to have been there but we just ran out of time uh, but i do think i was with zach johnson the u.s captain uh, yesterday two nights okay. ago uh, i was visiting with zach and you know uh, he they have six automatic positions and now they have six picks and it used to be 10 and two and yeah. I, captain how do i take six players and differentiate between number eight and number 14 
but 14 just clobbered number eight last week. And, and now you, you get into all these permutations. And I think it'd just be simple to say, okay, take the best 12 and just 12, the 12 to qualify and put them together, put them on a golf course. Then you don't have all this, these fluctuations and what's up in the engine. But anyway, uh, Zach is a little bit uh, perplexed as a, who he's going to take. You know, who I don't Justin know. Thomas, Justin Thomas, Hill. Again, you, you pick a name. Uh, is Justin having a good year? Justin, there's no. Uh, do you put him on your team? Uh, you know, I, you don't know. And, and I would think, as far as uh, the uh, the other side goes, they have the same thing. But I think they have a very solid lineup over there. And playing in Rome, playing in Europe, is going to definitely be on the side of the uh, uh, European. U.S. Or, uh, U.K. team. I, I I wouldn't be a bit surprised to see see them walk away with a win. I'd be disappointed, of course, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, and that's quite a turnaround. Uh, I can remember a story: Christy O'Connor Jr. missing out selection by something like five hundred pounds. It was something ridiculously low, mm. but had he had fallen out of form. Uh, and at that stage, there was two picks, I believe, for Europe. Um, but but he, he hadn't competed terribly well. And uh, I think a Spaniard was chosen, and I can't not remember who. Uh, and it was quite controversial. But the reason was that the Spaniard had finished the last two or three tournaments uh, well, certainly in the top 10 of each, and was felt to be playing well, whereas Christie. Uh, was felt not to be playing well. And that proved to be a relatively successful decision, I believe. Uh, and um, I, I think that form going into it, Hale, uh, is really important, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I, I think the as your, your current form is very important, but the thing we cannot measure is heart. You can't no. measure desire. You can't measure courage. Now, you might be able to measure how they finished the week before. Did he win? Did he finish fifth? How much money? Blah, blah, his rankings. But when it comes down to Ryder Cup, you can throw all of that away, and it comes down to mano versus mano. That's, it's one-on-one. -on -one. As you said, you like boxing? That's pretty much what it is. It's a, it's a boxing match. And who can go out there and be the underdog and still win? That is what makes Ryder Cup interesting, and that's what I think we're going to see this year. It's going to be a, a fantastic event. Well, Hale, one of the best in the business, sir, uh, really revered around the world of golf, uh, hugely popular both in the States and in, in the United Kingdom as well. Uh, we have really enjoyed chatting and your insight into golf. Uh, you're an absolute gentleman. You have played at Loch Lomond Golf Club. Uh, and Yeah, yeah. And what do you remember about that, Hale? Oh, I had, had uh, uh, great fun. It was the Scottish Open. I played there, and uh, yeah. I, I played, uh, oh, let's see. I'm trying to think. The opening round, I was, well, I, I, I've kind of gone blank here, but uh, I remember thinking, you know, I, I, I might have a chance around here. It's a Tom Builder. It's got some required shot-making. Uh, you, you can't be slack in how you play. You, you've got to hit it quite well. And uh, the eventual winner, oh, guys, uh, from Sweden. Uh, oh, Ed Edfords? Edfords. Oh, yeah, yeah, I played with Johan Edfords. And, yeah. And, and uh, 
you know, the first hole has a little bit of a rise. You can't quite see where the ball lands. And I hit a good drive, went up there, and there's a ball miles ahead of me. <laughs> I think, whoa, this guy could really hit it. And he putted with a, a, a distinct putting grip. Uh, yeah. Very close together, overlapped, just had the parallel thumbs going down the shaft. And, geez, he shot 68-64 and ends up winning. And I came home thinking, I'm going to try putting like that. <laughs> just, you know, you try to learn as you go. But it, I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, you know, Lyle Anderson, who helped develop Locke Loman, is a good friend of mine, lives here in Arizona. And and so uh, we had a grand time and, and thoroughly enjoyed Locke Loman, its members, and the club. It, it was just a, a wonderful experience. Well, I mean, you're you're always welcome, Hale. You know that. You're always welcome at Loch Lomond. And I'll just add something to you. Talking about Johan Edwards, I asked him this question, but those that have played Loch Lomond and, and uh, realised the second, now you think if you're, if you're teeing off the back sticks, uh, there's a wall, which is probably, and I should know exactly, but say 100 yards uh, from the green, uh, and I said, is it true that you drove your ball to the wall from the back? And he said, yes, it is true. <laughs> and that is remarkable. So he'll, he must have been smashing it miles. Oh, uh, it, was, it was so impressive. Uh, and I didn't know him. I, 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 I'd never heard of him. And I... <laughs> And he gets up there and he, he just goes out there. She's just, just the easiest 68, 64 you've ever seen. And I thought, wow. And then he goes on to win. And, uh, you know, you, you, as I said, you try to learn from others. If it's not something physical, you try to learn mentally for maybe what they're doing. And I, I've always tried to learn from whomever I played. And uh, if you can take away a little something, uh, then, then you've made, you've made uh, yourself better. Absolutely, Hale. And on that note, uh, thank you for giving us your time. I know you're a visit, very, very busy man. Thank you so much, Hale. Uh, we loved every minute of it. And I well, hope to see you at Loch Lomond Golf Club. Well, I certainly hope so, Bill. I enjoyed it very much. And to all your listeners, uh, keep listening. It's a, it's, it's a great show. Hale, you're delightful. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you, sir. Bye. Bye. Uh, and that was Hale Irwin bringing to a close our view from the loch. Uh, we've done a number of podcasts, 22, 23, I believe, uh, and it's been super fun. And I hope that you, and thank you for listening. We have got up towards the, the 10,000 mark, which is incredible. Uh, and what a chat to finish off with. There's a few thanks that I'd like to uh, make uh, people who have made the show possible. Uh, Andy Anson, uh, our IT manager, deserves a lot of credit with John McKellar, uh, also uh, working in IT at Loch Lomond Golf Club. Both have made themselves available. Uh, a drop of a hat, and I really appreciate it to make this production happen. Claire Wilkinson, our marketing manager, who edits and uh, who pours over the content uh, to make everything feel and sound right. Uh, well done to Claire as well. She's been an absolute superstar. Uh, and all, all the guests that we've had, Loch Lomond Whiskies as well, for putting up some bottles of whiskey that we're able to give out. Uh, thank you for listening. We will look to do a few specials uh, between now and uh, the end of the year. And uh, I just want to say to Loch Lomond Golf Club, thank you 
very much uh, that I've been involved with Loch Lomond for 13 years and it's been a real privilege uh, every step of the way. So thank you to Loch Lomond Golf Club, the board, the members, and of course, very importantly to me, the staff. Uh, that's Bill Donald checking out. Thank you. <laughs>